Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll talk balance, core strength, and fall prevention. Just lack of strength from a muscular standpoint, but then also an aerobic endurance standpoint because we see more falls occurring when people are fatigued. Plus, the value of art therapy for hospitalized children. They can elicit things in their artwork that maybe they weren't thinking about or that they maybe wouldn't have normally verbalized. And a nurse who vacations by volunteering overseas. El Salvador, we are typically gone about eight days, and I use my vacation time for the most part to do that. And it's really become something that's been supported by the whole community. All that and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we'll examine how art therapy is helping kids to heal. Plus, we'll hear all about one volunteer nurse's inspiring experiences in the third world. But first, falls can begin a cascade of catastrophic health consequences, especially for the elderly. How can improving your balance prevent them? Falls are the leading cause of injury-related visits to the emergency departments in the United States, and they're the primary cause of accidental deaths in persons over the age of 65. And that mortality rate for falls increases dramatically in persons 75 years of age and older. Well, here with more on all of this and what can be done to prevent these falls is Dr. Carol Sames. She's an exercise physiologist and the director of the Vitality Fitness Program in the College of Health Professions at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming in, Carol. Thank you, Linda. Always a pleasure to see you. But, you know, falls, I guess I never realized, they really can be life-threatening, and even more so at advanced ages. Explain that. Well, we certainly know that as we get older, there are changes that occur. And some of these changes really can impact balance. And we know certainly that loss of balance um, can result in a fall. So as we get older, we lose overall strength. Um, We lose muscle mass. It's part of the aging process. Um, One of the things that we also lose are fibers that are powerful fibers. We call them fast twitch fibers. And um, most of the back muscles have these fast twitch fibers. They're powerful fibers. And as we start to lose those, we lose this power. Uh, We lose um, endurance in terms of an aerobic uh, capacity. Vision changes can impact uh, balance. Our reaction time and our movement time also decrease. Um, We lose flexibility in the spine. In fact, um, If we look at the spine, that loses more flexibility than other joints in the body. We lose ankle flexibility, which sometimes people don't realize, but if I'm going to move and walk, and if I have restricted range of motion in my ankle, that certainly can predispose me to a fall. Um, All sensory, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. You were starting to say all sensory. All sensory, How about things, I mean, it was always taught to me that balance in some part is controlled or uh, affected a lot in large part by your inner ear. 
so there's vestibular, right? It's called the vestibular apparatus. And so that's a whole nother subset of balance um, that, that can impact. And, and does and, that change also over age? As Yes, age? part of the sensory system that also um, can can become problematic and result in falls. But, but just, just briefly, let's just thumbnail what happens. So as an older adult, if you were to fall, I mean, when I say it can cause mortality, I mean, it's not necessarily the fall itself, the initial fall itself that causes mortality, but kind of a cascade of events that take place? Certainly. So you can have, you know, the more significant effects like, you know, traumatic brain injury. Um, or break a, or right. breaking a, a significant hip bone. Or- right. And, and then, you know, once... I fracture a hip, I'm certainly going to be immobile for a while. And when we're immobile, that puts us then at risk for other things. So it it is certainly a cascade uh, of events. Okay, so that, I think, is the crucial point. It's a fairly bleak picture, as you painted, in terms of the aging process. But I think what we want to do today is talk a little bit more about both prevention of these kind of um, decreased functioning and maybe even when and how to approach that kind of thing. Right. So what's, you know, what are the risk factors then for falls? So not surprising, the number one risk factor is history of previous falls. (laughs) So if I have documented falls in the past, that's the number one risk factor. Um, But then uh, we also know that individuals who are lower functioning, so I'm not able to be as mobile as I used to be. I start to lose function. Individuals, so she's someone more sedentary. Right, exactly. Individuals that are already using assistive devices. Okay. Obviously, I'm using those assistive devices for a reason, and that's um, uh, another risk factor. So just to clarify, an assistive device like a walker or a rolling or walker, a cane. cane, crutch, exactly. Um, any other balance impairments, so this is where you know vestibular apparatus dysfunction would, would come in. In terms um, of your basically your inner, inner ear, ear not functioning right. normally. Vision changes. I mean, certainly, I even know in my case, I do not see it in the dark as well as I used to. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe those thresholds where the carpet hits the linoleum, I don't see that as well, and, and that can be problematic. Um, medications, we certainly know certain types of medications um, can predispose an individual to falls. Um, you already mentioned age, okay, as I get older. Um, and then just lack of strength from a muscular standpoint, but then also an aerobic endurance standpoint because we see more falls occurring when people are fatigued. Um, so, you know, there's a la- so those lack all of make core. a lot of sense. Go ahead, you right. Were- no, a lack of core strength. So when we get into talking about core strength, yeah, I want to I want to get specific about that because it sounds to me like there are some criteria here, or not criteria, but key areas to focus on in terms of both in terms of preventing falls and, and what you were talking about. I mean, some of the things we can't change. Right. We can't change the fact that we're aging. No. Even though we'd like to find that mm-hmm. fountain of youth. You know, no one's done it so far. So it, it's a matter of what are the what are the key issues in terms of to, that need to be focused on. And you mentioned, obviously, balance, and we need to talk about that, both what controls it and how you might improve it or work on it. And the other is this issue of core strength and what exactly that means. Right. So the way we were put together, we have this lovely core, and core muscles are our abdominal or stomach muscles, our back muscles, muscles that encompass the hip, and then a group of muscles that we call pelvic floor muscles. And so they're our core muscles. And the analogy is that we, we have muscles that are more superficial, 
And those muscles act more like guy wires. So if we were to put a tent up, we would see those ropes that come off the sides. And that's those types of muscles are there for general stability. So when I'm carrying heavier loads or um, maybe I'm walking in the mall and it's very crowded and somebody bumps me, uh, I'm able to you know resist that bump and fall. So are you saying, just to get it clear, those so-called guy wire muscles, those peripheral, those are the core muscles? Well, no. There's some of the core muscles. Oh. And then we also have deeper core muscles. And um, those muscles specifically uh, we see with the vertebrae of our back. And they're uh, essentially uh, there to, to keep the, the spine you know, in alignment. So we have these muscles working together. And I think a lot of times when people think of strength, we tend to think of strength of arms, legs. But what we need to understand is in order for those arms and legs to work properly, they have to be attached to something that is stable. We need stability. And that stability comes from our core muscles. Okay, so when you're born and when you start to develop and you start to walk, obviously you look at a two-year-old who's walking along, their posture is good, they have, they're beginning, they have some core strength, obviously they wouldn't be able to walk. And so actually, even if you didn't necessarily exercise those core muscles, you basically maintain that core strength or the, the modicum of strength you need until, really until what point in your life does it start to decrease? Well, honestly, we do lose muscle strength after about the age of 30. However, I have to stress that individuals that stay active all right, are able to maintain strength. So a lot of these decreases that we see in core correspond to individuals who also are not active because the the act of moving requires a certain amount of core strength. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with exercise physiologist Dr. Carol Sames, and we're talking about falls and how to prevent them. Okay, so get back to that concept. Let's Let me just move it to the side for a second and talk about balance. Mm -hmm. There's static balance and dynamic balance. Explain right. that. So static balance is us sitting in a chair or standing and not moving. That's static. And dynamic balance is once we're moving. Um, so again, not surprisingly, you see more falls occurring on the dynamic side. So I get up to move and I fall. Um, Are different mechanisms controlling the static balance versus the dynamic balance? There's a lot of overlap. So if we're talking static balance where I am standing for a long period of time and I start to get fatigued, that could be one thing. When we talk about dynamic balance, we're talking about the ability to generate um, power. So if I go to sit to stand, for instance, I have to have that power, that strength um, to get up. And then if and I'm to maintain this that upright position, position. correct. <laughs> um, but when we're talking about standing for long, if you look at people that sit for long periods of time, you know, you start out with good posture, and then what happens over time? There's the slouch. There's there's the fatigue that is occurring, or or it could even be that people don't realize um, that my posture all of a sudden is quite poor until maybe I experience some type of pain, maybe in my lower back or my shoulders or a sign that, you know, you need to change the posture. So the bottom line is that um, after the age of 30, if you're not active in some way, 
these things will start to diminish, these, these, both your balance abilities and your core strength. So basically, what I think I'm hearing you say is you really don't want to wait, unless you, right now you are an elderly person, but if you are not an elderly person, you really don't want to wait to improve those things to prevent later falls. You want to start to do the things you need to do to maintain that strength and flexibility. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. That whole notion, I don't want to run out of time because this is so important. There's a lot out there about core and about developing your core and strengthening your core. And I fear that sometimes it's some of the information is misinformation. So help us to understand what do you need to do? What are the kinds of things you need to do and how regularly to maintain and or strengthen your core muscles. Right. So the first thing is you need to know yourself. So if I have I really identified some balance issues, maybe I've had a number of occasions where I have really felt like I've almost lost my balance. That's a discussion that you need to take up with your physician. You have to advocate. Um, because there's all types of different physical therapy interventions that can occur that are balance interventions. So it could be walk walking pattern type training. It could be postural training that I need. Um, It could be multi-sensory training, um, center of gravity uh, types of control, vestibular training that are beyond just let's do some basic exercise. We really do need an intervention. So there, just to separate, there's work on your balance Mm -hmm. and then there's work on your core. And they aren't really the same. They inter they, they interlace and they interact. So if you want if you were working on your balance, mm-hmm. I mean, for one thing I know from my own life experience, working um, doing yoga, for example, has within it certain postures that emphasize balance quite right. a bit. Mm-hmm. So is that one way to work on it, or there? No, assuming absolutely. there's no medical problem right, assume, right. with your inner ear or right. something of that nature. So certainly flexibility, because if I don't have good range of motion around a joint, well, that's going to be problematic in and of itself. So flexibility training and then also strengthening. And that is really the key. I, again, for individuals that are not very active, it's, it's surprising. The research absolutely demonstrates that individuals that have weaker core muscles have much more incidence of low back pain um, and you also see less ambulation so they're not moving around as much and you know we were talking about falls certainly the consequence is injury but you know another big consequence of falls is my loss of confidence and loss of confidence can then lead to you know loss of independence and that that's that's a spiral in the wrong direction because exactly. I actually need to move more and now I'm not confident um, and I'm going to move less and mm-hmm. to me that's just such a so tragedy. That's that's, a re- that's actually a, dec- a, a a negative downward spiral is Absolutely. what you're saying. So once again, just outline for me what does one have to do ba- to either build balance and or or you've you've outlined some of that in terms of physical therapy or specific exercises, but how about core? What, so, what can people do so, to build so, their so core? Some simple things to do with core. I, we can do core things in a chair. So sitting, I can do sitting things where I pull my belly button in back towards my spine, but I keep breathing and I hold that and then I relax. That's wonderful. I can do sit to stand. So sitting in a chair and then standing, that's also strengthening. Um, I can do um, wall squats up against the wall that's not there, and I don't have to start with a deep squat, but all of those activities are building strength. 
And then when we get into the flexibility activities, working on range of motion. I can do those things sitting. I can do those things standing. I don't need a lot of equipment, uh, so to speak. Your own body Your weight. Your own body weight. Because the concept here is not necessarily becoming a bodybuilder when no. we're talking about strength. It's maintaining what would be um, the, the normal amount of strength to do the activities of daily living. Exactly. Functional strength, something that is actually applied. And that's why it's just so important that we get people up and moving. Um, so can you do that at an older age in the little bit of time we have left? Absolutely. Even in if fact, you're an, an even, elderly person. Even over 80, the research is very clear that you can reduce your risk factor for falls, you can increase strength, you can increase your balance. So both, basically the core strength, flexibility, and balance are critical in trying to avert the whole downward spiral that comes with falls. Absolutely. Very, very helpful information. I appreciate it. And as usual, you're very clear and, and inspiring in a way because it's, it seems within reach. So I want to thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Carol Seams. She's an exercise physiologist. She's also the director of the Vitality Fitness Program in the College of Health Professions at Upstate Medical University. Once again, Carol, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Linda. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. up next, how art therapy is helping hospitalized kids to heal. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Hospitalization is a difficult experience at any age, but when it comes to children, there are special challenges. Here with her special brand of help for these patients is Maria Fazzini. She's a licensed creative arts therapist and board certified art therapist and a member of the Division of Child Life at Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital. Welcome, Maria. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Well, I've always thought that the expressive arts, they've always been known to have a healing quality. But help us understand what we mean when we talk about art therapy. What is it essentially? Well, art therapy is a mental health profession that utilizes art materials and a therapeutic alliance with an art therapist with art making experiences to engage patients in a healing process to meet whatever goals they may be working towards. So what are the kinds of things, I mean, basically it's a process doing art therapy over time, much like any kind of therapy would be. Right. So, I mean, how do you basically decide what patients would benefit from art therapy? Who decides and how is it decided? Well, I use a process of prioritization and um, 
between that and referrals from um, staff, child life members, doctors, nurses, and I determine based on research what um, patients may have a need. Uh, if they're exhibiting signs of anxiety, if they've been in the hospital longer, may need a normative experience, um, lots of different similar attributes. So much like any kind of therapy, the whole basis for it is to improve both the physical, the mental, and the emotional well-being of the child while they're in the hospital. Correct. Is that what you say is the main mission there? Absolutely. Because you said it's a mental health mm -hmm. profession, so you really are kind of using the art therapy as a way of kind of reaching them emotionally. Yes, <clears throat> all three definitely are um, part of s some patients need more on the line of mental health with coping skills. Some just need a outlet for some sensory stimulation. Um, some need just a normative experience, kind of all of those things um, individually or combined. What about art, though, gives them voice? I mean, that's seems to me, you know, there's there's play therapy, especially with young children, <clears throat> excuse me, which is kind of aligned, but not exactly the same thing where you might just play with a child and through their play, they can express things. How is art therapy, play, how does the art therapy play that role? So art is great in a lot of ways. It provides that normative experience. Most, not all, but most um, children have used some sort of art material, whether it just be a pencil or a pen to color or draw or crayons at school or glue or scissors. So they've used these things before in their, you know, maybe everyday life and they have um, some familiarity with those items. So to use them kind of takes away s some of the um, concern or maybe anxiety that they have. And so it's somewhat of a distraction in some ways. And you keep using the word normative. Mm -hmm. So it kind of brings them back to something that's a little bit more familiar right. or maybe normal in their lives when they're all of a sudden kind of whisked out of their everyday life and put into a less normal setting like a hospital. Right. Absolutely. And with the, with the art as well, it also, while they're distracted, they can elicit things in their artwork that maybe they weren't thinking about or, or that they maybe wouldn't have normally verbalized. So that piece comes out and they start drawing something and I can pick up from something with my training. I can pick up with, from something of that art piece and know that maybe we should start to talk about this, that they may not have known, um, especially depending on their age, that they were um, maybe feeling or had coming up. Are there particular cases, I know you were saying you prioritize based on how long they're there, whether they're having more of a extreme reaction to hospitalization, but I mean, do you find that there are certain kinds of cases that are better suited to art therapy, or ages for that matter, or is it so individual and just on a case-by-case -case basis? It's really individual, um, and case-by-case, -case, certain kids really come in and, and they're in the hospital and they may have some anxiety or they may have um, just some parents may have some concern about oh they're being withdrawn or they're being different and so I can come in and provide it you know an experience for them but a lot of times they each each patient is so different if I go in they may love art at home but in the hospital they may not be interested so they may choose not to have a session with me or they may not really like art at home but they do it at school sometimes, and so for me to bring that normative experience in, they change their mind and say, well, I don't really like art at home, but I'm willing to try it here, and I'm willing to have a session. So there's not always a 
black and white kind of, oh, this kid doesn't like art, so they may not like art therapy. That may not be true at all. So what is exactly your methodology? So you're given a referral, you go in, you basically meet the child. How do you establish, first of all, rapport and then your goals? So when I go in, I introduce myself and introduce services. Depending on the age, I do it a little bit differently. But um, for like a school age, I would go in and say that I'm the art therapist and I bring in art materials and work with patients and do art. So coloring and drawing and painting, which you can't see, um, is I, I try and move my face a lot. I try and be kind of... Um, very animated yes thank you very animated in what I do because that kind of gets their attention they have a lot of stuff going on and I want them to know that I'm bringing what is typically considered the fun stuff so I bring that kind of boisterous um, with me kind of a more light-hearted kind of um, environment than they are facing day to day absolutely and I don't have any medical equipment with me I don't touch any of the medical equipment so Um, From there, I I introduce to the patient, mostly um, looking at the patient, but I also incorporate the family that's in the room. And then I allow them to choose if they would like to have session or not. That's um, part of the, you know, at Upstate Galveston Children's Hospital, that's part of it, is that they get to choose whether or not they want the art therapy services or not. Um, Sometimes parents or um, patients will disagree, and so if parents want me, sometimes I'll offer a few more times, but they get to choose whether or not they want me in the room or not. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital art therapist Maria Fazzini, and we're talking about the benefits of art therapy for the hospitalized child. So what are your methodologies, your modalities? In other words, you mentioned drawing, pa- painting a bit, because I guess, is that possible or is that too messy in a hospital? Oh, no. No, it's not mess- too messy. And um, what other things do you do you offer? I mean, do you do things like clay work? Do you do things like beading or collages? Or I mean, just give us an overview of the kinds of things you offer. We do um, just about anything that we can think of. So we have photography. Um, we have... Um, some computers that we work with. Um, we had a computer donated from Griffin's Guardians. We have a lot of different um, things. We have paint, um, clay, air dry clay that we use. We have um, spin art that we use. We do beads. We have collage work. We do watercolor paint. We do washable paint. We have just about every paint you can think of. We have window markers that we can use. We use, um, once in a while, we use some face paint, depending on the patient. We have a lot of different um, things that we can utilize. And you basically just present the options, and the child tries to, it's up to the the individual patient to make the choice. Right. So I go in, and um, if it's a patient that I first met, it's a little different than someone that I've um, worked with many sessions. But I go in, and I offer materials that are appropriate. So with my training, I've learned what appropriate um, you mentioned developmentally appropriate. appropriate. Yes, mm-hmm. and and also to specific to the diagnosis. Oh, sure. Um, so I'll go in and provide some materials that are appropriate and then allow them to choose from those. That's not to say that they may not choose something that's not on my list, and then as long as I can you know, get it to work with them, I will absolutely bring that in for them um, or obtain it. How long do the sessions last? That's also very different. Typically, I would say 45 minutes, um, but sometimes patients can't last that long. They get tired quickly or um, different scenarios. So, so sometimes as short as 15 minutes or as long as an hour and a half. And then is it something that you would do on a daily basis? Let's say a child has particular issues like anxiety. It strikes me that that's probably 
maybe I'm wrong, but it strikes me that could be more of a universal experience for a lot of children, separated from their home, separated from their routine, and in a hospital, and maybe for lengthy periods of time. So in that kind of situation, would you be seeing them on a daily basis? How does that work? So depending on um, my schedule and how um, many patients I have that I'm trying to see that day, it's it's different, again, for each patient. So sometimes patients I know will be in the hospital for kind of a long period of time and we'll have set goals that we're working on and I will try and see them every other day, every two or th- you know three days, or maybe even once a week. If the patient's typically there for three days, then I'm probably going to try and see them every day if that's something that is needed and whatever we need to do to kind of work towards their goals. When you talk about their goals, though, I guess that's the thing I'm not exactly clear on. I understand what art therapy can provide in terms of bringing them out, maybe helping them to express feelings, anxieties, thoughts that perhaps on a conscious basis or on a verbal basis, they could not express. But then what do you do with those things, I guess? In other words, let's say a child expresses, draws a a picture that suggests some trauma or some, you know, disturbance that they're feeling, anxiety. What's your next step in that circumstance? Well, in, in that particular example, I can assist them with retelling their trauma story in a safe manner, there's a couple of different ways to do that, and I would do it based on the kid. Sometimes we do it in a storybook with different directives from me. Sometimes if they're older, I may allow them to direct it more themselves with me just guiding them. And so in that particular situation, there's a couple of different um, situations that we could do. So the goal really is to provide kind of emotional therapy in a way, using the art materials as the vehicle. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really what your training is. Mm-hmm. So what happens if a kid's not particularly artistically inclined? Is that is that a stumbling block? Um, no, absolutely not. Most kids um, don't have kind of the same stigma as adults do. And most of the time they are willing to try it, even if they don't necessarily like it at home, until they at least hit the teenage. And so they're more open to trying it. Sometimes parents will actually be like, oh, well, they don't really like art. And I'll be like, well, you know, we can give it a try. And there goes again with their choices. We can say, let's give it a try for 10 minutes. If you don't like it, then I can leave. And then you can say that you tried it. So basically, you're flexible. The environment is flexible. And the goal really is to try to ease the pain of the child, psychic pain in this case, or any kind of emotional concerns they might have. Right, really just trying to improve their well-being while they're here in the hospital. So how did you and why did you decide to become an art therapist? Um, I started um, when I was real young. I was uh, watching my brother um, in a marching band parade, and he was marching, and I wanted to provide some photographic memories of the... uh, parade for him and so I grabbed my dad's camera and started taking pictures and then from there I had a real interest in art and kind of pursuing photography so I started pursuing photography when I reached um, college my supervisor uh, mentioned art therapy to me because I also like psychology so she had me look into graduate programs in art therapy. So it was a nice marriage for you of two interests. Absolutely. Yep. So do you continue to, to pursue your own artistic interests even now? 
yes, um, I, I don't do it as much as I would like to, but I do. I, I still take pictures um, outside of work, and I still do some collage work um, for my own self-care. So in terms of um, just a little bit of time we have left, how long a time is it in terms of training? Is it college and then what, really briefly? Yep. So you need a master's degree, and during your master's degree you have a 500-hour um, internship. And then in order to get your license, you have to have 1,500 um, contact hours under a supervised um, in a supervised situation with a, a licensed art therapist. And then you're really kind of off on your own, or do yep. you have you can still keep checking in? You have help? to, yep, you have to take a, um, a test to get the license, and then from there on you just have to get um, supervised hours. Would you recommend it for others? Absolutely. I love it. <laughs> it's a great career. Yeah. Maria, thank you so much. My guest has been Maria Fazzini. She's a licensed creative arts therapist and board certified art therapist and a member of the Division of Child Life at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Once again, thanks so much for coming in. Thank I'm you. Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. inspiring story of volunteer nursing in the third world. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Medical care in third world countries often leave much to be desired. So when an American oncology nurse volunteers her skills to work in just such an environment, the challenges can be great. Here to tell us more about her experiences in this realm is Brooke Fraser. She's a pediatric oncology nurse at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Welcome, Brooke. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. So I understand that you have recently, most recently, volunteered your time in Ethiopia, and you were helping to set up a new pediatric oncology unit. Tell us about that. What was that like? Well, I started volunteering for the Aslan Project, which is a nonprofit organization that helps to develop pediatric oncology programs in developing countries. And prior to 2013 in Ethiopia, there was no services for children with cancer. And there is a lot of children with cancer in third world developing countries. And they developed a program in the capital of Addis Ababa in 2013, and they've been successfully treating children since that time. And children are surviving that would have just passed prior to them being involved. They are starting a program now in Jima, Ethiopia, which is about, well, five to eight hours, depending on your mode of transportation from the capital. And they need physicians and pharmacists and nurses to go into that area to help support the nurses and the doctors that are there to develop this new program so that children can now be treated in another area of the country. So how did you get involved in this? In other words, I know that prior to this you've done other mission work and we'll talk about those in a little bit more detail, but how did you find out about this need and how did you get involved? Maybe in a global sense, how did you get involved? Well, this specific trip, I actually overheard a colleague of mine talking about the organization, and she was going to start doing work for them. And so I immediately was like, oh, I'll help. You know, I would, I would love to go and donate my time and my um, services. 
But in, sp- in particular, why? Why mission work? Where is this coming from within you? I decided about four years ago that I wanted to start doing mission work for a number of reasons. I wanted to donate my time as a nurse and be able to give back to the global community. I've been serving the central New York area as a nurse for 20 years, but I wanted to step outside of my comfort zone a little bit and be able to understand and appreciate another culture. And a big piece of this also is that I wanted to involve my then 15-year-old oldest son. My son Bennett has gone to El Salvador, which I know we're going to talk about three times with me on a mission trip. And part of my desire to go on these trips was to involve my children because I wanted them to understand the concept of global community. Where does that come from, though? I mean, I I totally am inspired and respect what you're saying, but is there some history in your own development or in your own background that led you to have this kind of intense interest, not only in the global community for yourself, but also in sharing it with your children? I just felt that they needed to have a better understanding of different cultures and to be able to understand people. And I thought that the best way that they could do that is by serving other people. And I think I've referenced before many times the quote by Mahatma Gandhi that the best way to find oneself is to lose oneself in the service of others. I believe that with my whole heart. And I wanted my children to understand that firsthand. That's very inspiring. Is there a religious background to this for you? Because I'm not saying that's true for every person who does this kind of work, but I'm wondering, is there some kind of a religious thread here in terms of your own faith? For me, there wasn't. Um, I just simply wanted to go and serve as a nurse in a country that had needs and to be able to increase my cultural awareness and sensitivity and also involve my children. And how many children do you have? I have three boys. Wow. And so now two have already participated, or just the oldest? Just one. He's now a uh, freshman in college. He's gone to rural El Salvador with me three times, and in February, when I take my fourth trip to El Salvador, I will be taking my 16-year-old son. Have you ever had any concerns with regard to safety in terms of bringing your children into those environments? I think that there's always a concern for safety, and we try to take the precautions that are necessary. But I also believe that you have to take some risks in life. And every time we get in our car just to drive to work is a risk. And that should not be something that stops you. Wow. Quite inspiring. Let's talk a little bit about more about Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. What did you find when you went there? Extreme poverty. I think in many ways worse than when I'm in the jungle in El Salvador. Um, there was a lot of dirtiness, a lack of hygiene, a lack of clean water, Some of the things that we run into when we're in El Salvador also, but the setting is completely different because my role is different as a nurse in each country. Yes, so explain that, and we'll talk more about El Salvador at the same time. So what, what was your role in Ethiopia specifically? My role in Ethiopia was to be there as a specialist in pediatric oncology and provide teaching and role modeling and support um, as they roll out their new program, another for other staff, in other words, for the you other were nurses. Nurse, mm-hmm. So you were training indigenous nurses, people who were native nurses to that environment, correct? In in the proper techniques and right. procedures and protocols and all of that, right? Nurses that are pediatric nurses by trade, but are now going to be start starting to care for this specialized population, this pediatric oncology population. 
And I was also there to do kind of an analysis of what the current state of pediatric nursing was because the program that I work for, for Oslin, they need to know what to focus on going forward. So they, I went in there and worked side by side with these nurses every day for two weeks so that I could have a better understanding of the barriers that they face and where their strengths and their weaknesses and their opportunities and their threats are. And I put all that together after I came home into an analysis, which I recently submitted to them. That's really important and essential. I would think someone really with eyes and ears on the ground who has the expertise to analyze what exactly the needs are. So that's really crucial in building a program, I would think. Correct. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with pediatric oncology nurse Brooke Fraser, and we're talking about volunteering her time in third world settings. Let's go to San El Salvador. So how did you get there initially? What is your role in that environment? When I was originally looking for mission work or service work for myself to do and for, that I could also bring my oldest son to, I was referred to Dr. Joe Domikowski, who works here at Upstate. And Joe goes to um, rural El Salvador every year for the past 10 years and has set up a medical clinic in the village of Rancho Grande. And I went to him and told him that I would work as a nurse in his clinic if he would if he would take me. <laughs> and thankfully, he said yes. And that trip was my first trip that completely changed my life. Um, I worked as a nurse and did, you know, vitals and triage and um, as, you know, helped see the patients before they would go into the clinic and see the provider. Now, this was oncology or not oncology? Nope. This was more general nursing, pediatric Correct. nursing. Well, we saw we see adults and children. Both. We see the entire mm -hmm. family. Um, in Rancho Grande. So um, basically, you said it changed my life. Amplify that. In what way? It definitely increased my, like I mentioned before, my cultural awareness and sensitivity. I live, when we're in El Salvador, we live right among the villagers. We eat our meals with them. We sleep right in the village. It gave me an appreciation for their way of life, and it opened my eyes and made me have just a better appreciation for the world outside of the community that I spend all of my time in here in central New York. Had you ever traveled as a child? Had you ever seen the world before you started these missions? No, I hadn't. So in some ways, this, this, these were really your first Correct. exposure to larger global issues. Correct. Yeah, and sounds like you got hooked. <laughs> I definitely did. Did you develop relationships especially in some place like El Salvador in terms of returning? Was Absolutely, there... because we return to the same village every single year. So I've watched those children grow for the last three years. I've established relationships with the different adults, with the women who cook for us, with the school teacher, Dora, with the different community members, and I can't wait to go back and see them in February. Wow. So just logistically, how do you get the time to do this? When do you do it? And how do you engage your children or your child at this point in these kinds of trips? How long is the trip? El Salvador, we are typically gone about eight days. And I use my vacation time, for the most part, to do that. Same with going to Africa. I used all of my summer vacation to go to Ethiopia. My children, this has become now a part of our lives. So we spend a lot of time fundraising. We host pancake breakfasts. We have an... Um, involved the school district, the Jordan Elbridge School District, and it's really become something that's been supported by the whole community. 
And you're doing some teaching in the community as well as part of this? Explain that. So I started involving the 5th and the 6th grade in the Jordan Elbridge School District because I truly believe in the importance of children understanding some basic concepts that I didn't have an understanding of growing up. One of those is global community, understanding that community is not just what's around them in Elbridge or in Jordan or in Syracuse or in New York State or the United States, that the community is really everybody in the world. And also different concepts, one that I like to call universal language, that you don't have to necessarily speak the same language as somebody to have an understanding and to be able to communicate with somebody else. And these are key concepts or key principles that I like to go and teach the fifth and sixth graders. So before I go on the trip to El Salvador, I go and I talk to them about these concepts and try to get them an understanding of what is the way of life in rural El Salvador. They collect supplies and donations that I bring down to El Salvador with me. And when I return from El Salvador, I go and I do a presentation and a question and answer session wow. with the seniors that I take or the juniors that I take from Jordan Elbridge so that these children are involved. They've been involved with this now for the last few years. So the district has been extremely supportive. That's incredible. That's a real giving back. As you said, not only to the global community, but through the global com community, you're <laughs> yes. giving back to your own local community. So what would you say um, is the most challenging part when you do this? What's the most difficult, challenging part? There's a couple things that I think are the hardest. One is leaving my other children at home. I traveled to Ethiopia for 15 days this summer. I used all of my summer vacation, and I went alone. I left my whole family. That's difficult on a personal level. The other thing that's difficult personally is to see the poverty. And you can only make a small difference. You can't fix everything. You can't give everybody all the clean water and the, the food and the money that you wish and you hope that you could give them. You can't eradicate disease. You can't take everything away that you want to have taken away. We can only do a small part. I am thankful for the small part that I can do. And would you say that the most rewarding thing? I don't want to run out of time. What's the most rewarding thing about doing all of this just, for you personally? For me personally, just knowing that I can make a small difference that even if I can make one person's day better or one person's week or year or anything better makes it all worth it to me. Well, it sounds to me like, um, based on so many things you've said so far and the quote that you gave us before from Mr. Gandhi, I think you'd make Mr. Gandhi very proud by the kind of life that you've chosen to live. Um, are you going to do this again? Absolutely. I have a passion now for global work. And I have no intention of stopping. So you're going to keep going with this and hopefully in involve your children as well? Absolutely. And have they expressed a positive feeling overall? What's what, just very little bit I of time have we changed, have left? I think it's changed my oldest son's life. He has now decided to go pre-med as a major at Binghamton University. And he is thinking of minoring in Spanish. And he has his eye on global health. And I think that it's definitely changed my kids. Um, even my youngest, who's only 11, understands the importance. When I have to leave him and I say, Connell, I know this is really hard that I have to leave, but do you he goes, yes, I think this is okay because you're helping those kids and you're helping those people. 
Well, really, I, I'm breathless. I mean, I think this is an incredibly inspiring story. And I give you incredible kudos for what you're doing and hope you continue in this wonderful work. Thank you. My guest has been, my guest has been Brooke Fraser. She's a pediatric oncology nurse at Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital, and she does missionary work in the third world. I'm Lydia Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. One of the enduring topics The Healing Muse receives concerns grief, such a profound and sometimes frightening emotion. I'd like to share work from two of our writers, one an essayist, one a poet, as each grapples with the aftermath of loss. The first comes from central New York writer and self-described recovering academic, Jill Swenson. Here is an excerpt from her essay, Crazy Chick Waiting for a Collect Call from the Sundance Kid. Grief hits me upside the head, knocks the wind right out of my sails, cuts me off at the knees, weighs on my chest heavier than a two-ton truck, presses down on my shoulders, and racks my addled brain. Grief washes over me. Grief inflicts itself upon my soul uninvited and unwelcome, slips into my life on a stealth mission, takes me hostage, and shakes me down. It might be a verb, but grieve isn't something I do. It's something done to me. I try to manage my responses to the reality of death, but bodily reactions don't allow my mind much control over the matter. Lead feet, bowed head, shoulders to ears, hollow eyes, snot and tears. Grief grabs your appetite and spits it in your face. Death casts grief like a shadow upon those left living. It is a physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual wallop. I stand in the shade of the tree of forgiveness and wail. Yes, Sam's death feels like a spanking for which I examine my conscience for the sin that evoked it. Grief can bring along its relatives, guilt, the what-ifs, and shame. Grief makes me feel naked. Every nerve is exposed and raw, sensitive to the touch, the shadow, the memory. I'm ashamed to be a widow. It's a status assigned, not elected, not my choice. I resist, but it is futile. Grief makes me regress, irritable and fussy like a teething baby. My patience, good manners, and small virtues got sucked out of my soul with his spirit's departure. The second reading is from Arizona poet Donna Pfluger. Her poem is entitled, How to Endure the Beast Called Grief. Be a grackle, shine with the glossy black of loss. Stare down grief with beady yellow eyes, screech and whistle, raise hell in a parking lot, fight over scraps of memories, and win.
you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we take a look at the importance of childhood vaccinations. We also take a look at the changing face of abortion laws and discover a less invasive ways of diagnosing tumors. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. Now that's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.